all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We also want to thank our latest national sponsor, Veteran Lending Council. It is a community dedicated to educating lenders, realtors, and veterans on the VA Home Loan Benefit Program. You can check them out on Facebook and other social media outlets. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, John Fonts, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired from the United States Army, spent 20 years uh, serving his country and recently retired. So we're going to talk about some uh, things in the news. But John, welcome to Veterans Radio. Jim, thank you so much. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. Well, we've uh, got some mutual friends, and they said great things about you, so I'm looking forward to learning about your career and your background. But I understand uh, you went to high school here locally at Catholic Central and uh, then moved on to West Point. Uh, what made you go to West Point? Um, I think the most immediate answer was my brother also had been there. He was a 1989 graduate. And uh, so it was always in the back of my mind that I would consider perhaps going there. But also just my family has been a very veteran service oriented family. My dad had four brothers. They all served in the military. My mom had three brothers. They all served in the military. I had one uncle who served in World War II, one in the Korean War and one in Vietnam. And so it was just something that my parents were exposed to and they thought was a very high and noble calling. And I saw how my family reacted to my brother's service. He served during the Desert Storm, um, and we decorated the house. Um, we watched the news, and we paid close attention to it. And it was a great party when he came home. And, uh, and he always spoke highly of it, the Army as well as West Point. And he, like everybody else, said, it's really hard. It's really challenging. And I think I've always just been kind of drawn to the, anyone who likes to throw out a challenge or a level of difficulty. I just like to take it on. Well, the, you never thought about going to the Naval Academy? 
What Academy? I've never heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a long family service uh, to the Army that the Founts uh, family has, and that's wonderful. Um, it's really amazing, and probably when you went in, you didn't expect to spend 20 years, I don't think. I did not. I did not expect to spend that long. I remember even thinking hard about, ooh, five years was the, as is still the requirement once you graduate. I thought, that's that's kind of long. <laughs> uh, I guess I didn't think 20 was long. Well, and, and uh, your, I don't believe, was your brother a, a career service member? Or? No, no, he, uh, he got out at his uh, five-year mark uh, and, and moved on. Well, again, it's, it's one of those things. You get these great jobs. You get these great uh, people you work with uh, on important issues, and one year rolls into the next, and you look up and say, hey, I really enjoyed the 20. But let's go back. Um, tell us a little bit more about your career in the infantry and ultimately into special forces and on to some other places after that. So give us the thumbnail sketch of this. Certainly. Well, I graduated and was commissioned on the 2nd of June. 2021, so 21 well, years ago today. There you go. Yeah, nice coincidence. And, uh, of course, the world changed greatly a few months later in September. Um, and so I was in the infantry officer captain's career uh, basic course uh, when that happened down at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, and things got, uh, you know, very interesting very quickly. I finished that up and graduated and went on to ranger school and then immediately reported to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, in the summer of 2002, and we immediately saw shortly after a tensions building in the Middle East, uh, and as war loomed in, in January, we got orders to go to uh, Iraq as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, and so I spent eight months as a rifle platoon leader uh, during my time there at, uh, in Iraq. Um, spending most of my time there in Baghdad, uh, really as a 23-year-old kid trying to learn every day what, what I needed to be doing. It was a very daunting task for a young infantryman at the time. Uh, but, you know, my platoon of 40 guys, uh, we were all kind of doing it together. Well, and, and that's what I want you to talk a little bit about that because, you know, you're freshly minted out of the uh, West Point. You're all of a sudden in charge of 40 men and not just, hey, you know, making widgets on the line. This is life and death stuff. So one of the things the military really gives you is this early exposure to leadership, doesn't it? Yes. Um, it's It starts very early on. Uh, you're responsible for everything you do um, as, a, as a young cadet. And when you get further on at West Point, and I would later go back as a TAC officer doing the same thing to other cadets, um, they try to put the onus of decisions on you uh, and let you make it as a leadership laboratory should be. Um, and so you get used to making those decisions and you get used to making some bad decisions and you get used to learning how to rebound or become a little bit more resilient toward those decisions. You're going to make bad ones. That's what things like Ranger School and the basic course are for. They're going to put you in situations where you're going to have to lose something no matter what decision you make. There is no perfect answer um, in these scenarios because in those kind of situations, um, you got to sometimes have to figure out amongst all the chaos, you know, how to get out of the situation or how to get out of this environment as best you can. Um, 
And I think everyone knew that. And everyone knew that there was a lot on my shoulders as well as theirs. And I think it fostered a lot of open communication. We were light infantry, but you really couldn't do that in Baghdad in order to cover down on our sector. So all of a sudden now we have vehicles. Um, and we hadn't really even trained for that. I mean, vehicles were just things that took us to the forest so they could drop us off before it started raining. <laughs> and here we are trying to figure out new SOPs, new ways and uh, TTPs to operate as a light infantry unit with vehicles inside an urban environment. Um, and so I think just the openness that everyone had about we've, we've got to put our heads together to figure out the best way uh, to do this uh, really built uh, some trust amongst us and my squad leaders. And it was it was a daily occurrence. We sat down every day and just looked at ourselves and say, hey, how are we doing? We're we doing good. All right. And we think we should be doing something different. And it led to some good conversations. Well, you had multiple overseas assignments. Um, so uh, you were in Iraq, and I think it was 2003 and four overlapping. Um, tell us the other two that you had. Uh, yeah, there was the a second deployment to Iraq during their first elections, uh, which was a very interesting time to be there to see them uh, go out and vote for the first time to to set their destiny. Um, I also then would transition over to the Special Forces in 2005 um, and went to 3rd Special Forces Group out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina as well. And uh, we did a, a trip to Tajikistan, uh, training their border guards. They share a border with Afghanistan and the opium was being transmitted between those borders pretty porously. Um, so we were training up those uh, individuals. We had 534 Tajiks with us. Um, and just teaching them some, uh, some border patrol maneuvers. And then 2009, my detachment, my special forces 12 man detachment went to RC East and partnered with the Afghan commandos. There was only six Afghan commando units in the entire country. And we were fortunate to get one of those and they were tapped for the, uh, better training, better pay and the more hazardous duties and missions. So, uh, we did operations all throughout RC East which is the entire eastern side of Afghanistan. For, um, for the, John, intense, for, but uh, pretty good. John, for those who might not understand what special forces means in the Army, can you give them an explanation here for Veterans Radio? Sure. So the United States Special Forces is the only unit authorized by Congress to conduct unconventional warfare. Um, and we focus there a little bit on building up other nations and what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan is what we call FID, which is Foreign Internal Defense. A Special Forces team is a 12-man self-sustaining team uh, with highly skilled people in weapons, uh, engineering, medical, and communication specialists, as well as intel specialists and some planning specialists like myself. And doctrinally, we're supposed to be able to train up to a battalion-sized level, which is why we had so many Tajiks and why I had an entire battalion of Afghans. Um, and our job really is to work ourselves out of a job, as we say. We try to train them up to do their own planning, train them up to do their own rehearsals, equipment maintenance, logistics, and hopefully as we continue to build them up, we can take a lesser role back. That's our goal. We try not to be the face of the operation. We really try to push them forward and keep them in front. Um, and it takes some specialized training to, to have that kind of patience because sometimes you want to do things yourself, because it might be the easiest way to do it. But a special forces team is going to build up over time those skills inside that unit so they can walk away one day and no longer be needed, hopefully. Well, and this fits into a little bit of what your 
areas of study were um, at uh, West Point, you, you obtained a degree in psychology, and you also graduated from Columbia University with a master's in organizational psychology in 2011. So this whole thinking about and how to motivate people and organizationally and the psychology of all of that was sort of fit right into your role uh, in these assignments, I would think. Yes. In fact, it was uh, President Eisenhower who was instrumental in bringing psychology and a few other uh, disciplines to United States Military Academy uh, when they were not existing. Um, and I think he, of course, understood greatly the impact that leaders can have just by their presence um, and just by understanding who you're leading. The emotional intelligence perhaps was not necessarily always a well-defined term early on in those days, but he did a lot to to push that. And now all the TAC officers that go to help train these 4,000 cadets at the United States Military Academy get that degree in organizational psychology through Columbia. They have a wonderful partnership and huge support. But that's because the entire goal was to, to help these individuals, again, make their decisions on their own and take ownership of those decisions. But each decision affects people so much differently that you've got to kind of have that um, flexibility uh, and patience to understand that you're dealing with a different person and trying to meet them at their level of how they understand it and to push them and find where they don't understand themselves, but to give them uh, the support to go ahead and make those decisions and learn from them. Well, I think many of us, uh, I have an engineering undergrad, see things uh, too black and white, two plus two equals four, but it's uh, when dealing with human beings, it's often not quite uh, so uh, regimented and black and white, so I, I can really see how this fits into being able to work with uh, so many different types of people all around the country. And you had an interesting... We, we could talk all day on that subject alone, but I want to move along to something that you had an interesting opportunity to work on. I'd like to change the subject uh, pretty much completely here, John, if you don't mind, yeah. and uh, turn our attention to what you're currently doing, but there's a lot of back history to how you ended up uh, here. And uh, in that regards, I'm, uh, John is now in his civilian life, um, he has joined Team Red, White, and Blue uh, on their staff as a special events manager. And uh, uh, remember now, John graduated from the uh, military academy at West Point in 2001. He, he picked up his uh, graduate degree, uh, his master's in organizational psychology in 2011. He also happens to be a marathoner, and he's run a marathon in every state. Um, but he also has connections that uh, with the founder of Team Red, White, and Blue. So tell us a little bit about uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. Let's start there. Absolutely. Um, Team Red, White, and Blue is a national nonprofit forging itself to become America's leading health and wellness community for veterans. It was started in 2010 by Mike Irwin, who had been the intel officer while I was serving in 3rd Special Forces Group for my battalion. And then he left to go to grad school in 2009 at the University of Michigan. And Team Red, White, and Blue has actually filed for paperwork right there in Ann Arbor. Um, and Mike had experienced, you know, the transition of coming. He came straight from Afghanistan to the classroom. And there, there's a cultural shock. Struggle. There's a cultural right. shock. Yes. And, you know, one of the things I remember him telling me is like, you know, two weeks before the class he was in, he was, you know, doing intelligence reports for people going into hazardous areas. 
and then sitting there in the classroom and for people to not in his mind to care as much about Afghanistan as he was caring about two weeks ago was making him frustrated and almost making him pull away from these people. And he realized that's the wrong way. I need to go toward these people. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just, they don't have the same kind of experience and same kind of knowledge and same kind of day-to-day interaction that Mike got to have or that I got to have. I experienced the same thing in 2010 when I left and went to Columbia. You know, I'm sitting there in one of the early days when someone says, oh, you're one of the individuals from West Point and they want to talk to you about Afghanistan and you want to come at it purely from a military standpoint and she's coming at it purely from a diplomatic standpoint. And I'm realizing that I've had one lens of many on how to view this war and she's got one lens. And how do we get that together? How do we share it? Well, in a good spot, in a good environment where we can build trust and build relationship and also, you know, work on community. And so initially, Team Red, White, and Blue's mission was enriching veterans' lives by connecting them to their communities through physical and social activity. Just to help people stay connected when they got out of the military. When you're in the military, you got PT every day. You got to wake up, you got to go, you got to work out, and you got to be there. That's your job. When it becomes an option for you and you're trying to transition to a new job and you're trying to work hard, you got a new house. Um, you know, those kind of things can drop off. And we were seeing that a lot of people were sacrificing physical fitness, physical and mental well-being on the altar of transition, got to get this move made. And so early on, there was a, started developing chapters. I mean, right now we're at over 200,000 members, almost 200 different chapters through the country, where it's just a place for people to come, whether a quarter of our members are civilians. And it provided a wonderful outlet as a huge part of our mission is to connect those people that might not have grown up in the military. Maybe they didn't have brothers and sisters or uncles that served, but they have questions and they don't always know where to turn. And sometimes that can be a difficult conversation, especially around days like Memorial Day. Like, how do you approach that? Well, the best way to approach that is to do something together. Get out and go for a run. There's something very connecting about a 5K goal, a marathon goal taking those steps, forward progress, and it just leads to conversation. And it just leads to, you know, Mike would say, exercise is the most underprescribed medication. These are the kind of things that we can do to let some things out, let off some emotional steam, and also at the same time, doing it with someone who's going to hold us accountable. So that's kind of the early days. And, and what's sort of surprising to me when I went to the website, which is teamrwb.org, was the fact that 25% of uh, Team Red, White, and Blue members are civilians. And it it is, that that really shows this, while it's veteran-centric and a way for veterans of a um, maybe younger, more modern era to get together and do things like runs, but you're also drawing in that uh, bigger community. Can, can you tell us some, give us some more statistics? What, what, what percentage are men, women, you know, what uh, campaigns do they come from? Uh, where are they spread, spread out around the country? Yeah, um, so for our members, about 60% are a veteran, about 23% a quarter are civilian. We still have about 11% active duty and 7% guard and reserve. It's about 60% male, 40% female. So, you know, a higher female percentage than what you'd see in the military. Um, so it really does kind of draw to both. Uh, 51% are Army, 19% Air Force, 16% Navy, 13% Marine Corps, 
and then another percent for Coast Guard and Space Force as well. Um, so we got all representations from all our services. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we have about a thousand of those members are what we call Eagle leaders. They've you know, taken the next step to say, I don't just wanna be a part of this organization. I have some more time or I have some more desire. I wanna step up and be a leader. And that could be something as simple as, hey, I'm gonna lead a run on Saturdays, or I'm gonna be the guy who organizes going to trivia at uh, a restaurant on, on Thursday nights and get everything together, get the table reserved, put the note to put the word out and get these people to come and join them and kind of just facilitate the interaction. Um, and those are really, those are our, that's our skeletal structure right there. Those are the people that really hold us together. And then we use our ethos to kind of be the, you know, the uh, nervous system that really brings it all together. Um, and that's passion, people, uh, commitment, camaraderie, and uh, those kind of things are what are central to what we're trying to achieve. And this is really a different model than the old veteran service organization where you'd go to the VFW hall and have drinks or play cards or smoke. Um, this is really a different model, isn't it? Yes, I think intentionally. Um, there was a great need. I think at that time uh, when some of these other organizations were starting up decades ago, um, and sometimes in some cases it was important to have veterans only. That's you know who they were able to, who they needed to speak to. But as we saw going forward, the landscape changing with, with veterans coming in and spending numerous deployments in a short period of time uh, for years and years when there was no end in sight, and then going out into the community and integrating into two thirds of veterans will go to a zip code they didn't come from, usually for a new job, maybe to go back to where their spouse came from. But, you know, in the army, in the military, you have this welcome, like everyone's kind of rotating. So it's, you're used to it. And as someone who just transitioned, now I even transitioned back to my, I transitioned back to the same house I grew up in that I got from my parents. <laughs> so it made it easy for me. But what I didn't realize was the effects on my wife and children. Um, you know, for me, it makes it sense. They're going to go to the school that dad went to when he was growing up. But to them, you know, they don't have their friends anymore. And the kids at that school aren't like them. At a military school, a third of the class is new because a third of the class's parents left last year. And they're used to that kind of uh, transition and, and change up. Uh, my wife now had to come back here and, you know, she used to have a whole group of wives. That, it was almost like Insta friends. You just kind of got together and said, I'm new, you're new. Hey, let's do this together. Whereas some of these, you know, uh, friends and spouse groups are kind of ingrained and set. Not that they're they're barriers to get into, but we're just not used to having to ask those kind of questions or do that kind of seeking. Well, it, so it, it was. It's it was an different. issue we've talked about on Veterans Radio before, and we're talking to John Founce, who's the uh, special events coordinator for Team Red, White, and Blue. And what you're hitting on, John, is something that. In the military, you had a network that was a military network. Now that you're out in the civilian world or maybe in a new business uh, after you get out, you have to build a whole new network of people in that neighborhood, in that community, and or, or maybe in that business uh, industry that you're going into that you didn't have before because you spent 20 years in the military. And that's where Team Red, White, and Blue, I'm sure, helps keep a network together where you find people who have 
that experience in the military, but maybe also can become part of the network in the new community or in the new business. Do you see that happening? Absolutely. All the time. And a lot of times when I was a chapter captain for Team Red, White, and Blue Sand Hills. When I left West Point, um, you know, I, I had been the Team Red, White, and Blue West Point chapter, and I got to the Sand Hills and, yeah, I wanted to keep going with RWB and meet new people. And I just started going to events wearing my shirt or running around carrying a flag. And, you know, you find people saying, like, oh, well, I wish I could join, but I wasn't in the military. I'm like, well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a teacher or I'm a nurse. Or I'm an accountant. Like, hey, we all need those people in our lives. We got those questions that we got to ask. We're new to this area. You've been here for a while. You have knowledge on the community. I might have knowledge on the veteran. And together, we're going to better understand one another and form that community that then becomes a place where you can come to when you are in need. And that's, I think, the ultimate goal in the end. When we talk about health and wellness for veterans, we're talking about having a community where they are able to get the mental or physical help they need, the accountability with a positive aspect of getting people out to go to those runs, or when a day doesn't go so well, to say, that's okay. You know, we're gonna get it back up next time. I'll be there with you. Uh, And so we are learning that everyone has a role to play. And it doesn't really matter what your profession is. Really, it's just a matter of wanting to serve those that served and build a community that you wanna be a part of. Well, this is an important discussion because it is PTSD Awareness Month uh, being recognized nationally, and that health and wellness goal of uh, RWB fits right into that. But I, I, I want to draw a distinction again for this organization that I think is important because I think it's a more modern approach. This isn't about you know monthly meetings or biweekly meetings or anything like that, is it? No. Nope. This is a, a revolving door. It can go in and out, and it's not just your community that you're a part of. Um, we have an app that you can download on the App Store, Team RWB. Sign up. You can get into your chapter, and you can look for local events, and they're all listed there, all different kinds. You can filter it. Maybe I'm not a runner. I'm a hiker. I'm a cyclist. You can find those events. And then when I travel, I've used that opportunity to change my location and find out what's going on. I've done a marathon with the Richmond chapter, uh, Hartford, Connecticut chapter, um, and I think a few other chapters, if I can think back to uh, even some more. I just kind of put my name out there. I'm like, hey, I'm an Eagle. I'm a Team Red, White, and Blue Eagle. I see you got an event going on. I'd like to come out. Absolutely. It's just bringing those people in from those different perspectives. So um, that's kind of how they do it. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get across. RWB is an event-driven uh, community. It's it's get out and do something driven community. And and that fits right back into the role that you're playing now as a special events manager. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. The special events are defined as any of the external partners, organizations that want to have Team Red, White, and Blue as a charitable beneficiary. We have a range of things. Uh, partner with the Marine Corps Marathon, where we get some bibs in exchange for uh, raising some money and raising awareness about their partnership with us. We've got a lot of small 5Ks, 10Ks that just say, hey, I wanted to raise some money for someone. And I said, who should I do it for? And someone in our community said, oh, you got to talk to you got to talk to Joe or you got to talk to Susan. And when he, you know, I get these calls all the time that says, hey, I, I just learned about you guys. But 
someone wanted me to know that it would be put to good use to partner with you guys. And so what can we do? And then we'll usually just set up some kind of agreement where we try to promote their event. We put it in our app so that all when you're searching for things, you might see the Dexter Ann Arbor run in there and say, hey, wow, this, this run is benefiting Team Red, White, and Blue. I'd like to choose this one uh, and go out there and support them. And that's kind of why we view this community where we're offering real life and also virtual events. The past two years have shown that that's going to be something that's going to be more part of uh, you know, our daily lives, even still today, for many reasons. But also just the idea that you can connect with people all over the country, that you can get on there. And I've done virtual yoga sessions where it's a live yoga session and I'm doing yoga with a bunch of different eagles. Um, and sometimes you run into someone that you've seen before, just there on the screen. But it's another way to get people back into being active and healthy in their lifestyle. And um, as you've mentioned before, it's a 501c3 charity that's always looking for some financial help. It has a uh, really blue chip list of corporate partners that you can find on the website. And it also was the recent recipient of a very generous donation. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what the plans are for how that will expand uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. Sure, we of course are very excited uh, for the $6 million donation that Mackenzie Scott gave and the trust and the challenge that she's given to Team Red, White, and Blue. Um, and so we've put that money immediately to good use by hiring a uh, business development person. We only have 32 people on staff. So what we're able to accomplish with 32 employees, I think is pretty good. Um, but now if we're gonna serve more, we're gonna have to do more and we're gonna need more. And so I think we're gonna grow our bench a little bit and get some people that have some, we had a, a phenomenal uh, number of applicants for that director of development position. And we just hired a director of operations. And I know that RDB, I think interviewed and looked at resumes from over a hundred people trying to get those jobs. And I think it says a lot when you put up that job and there's that many people that are trying to get in there. So we're really trying to figure out how we can take this to the next level. One of the things that we do do, and you can find on our website uh, on, under how to get involved is Eagle Expeditions. These are things that we get people to go do some really challenging things. Uh, rim to Rim, Grand Canyon, um, Smoky Mountains backpacking, Boundary Waters kayaking. These are just events that you can put on the calendar. You can say, I've got to get a training plan. We provide that training plan. You can stick to it. You're checking in with the big long runs or the long rides. And you're kind of getting closer to that day, that event together with other people. Again, it's just a community of people on a, on a phone that says, hey, I saw what you did. Good job. You're posting saying, hey, did have a very good run today? Or I just felt a little tired. Look, hey, man, when I do that, I use this supplement or I take this a little bit before I run if we're going to run more than 10 miles definitely have some food some people have all that will but they just you know life's busy so they don't have the time to maybe uh, dig into all the research what to do but but veterans often do or someone in that group does someone on our staff does and they're watching those groups and they're helping those groups and there's a moderator and we're going to grow those and we're going to get more events for people to come out and do it in person we just released a new uh, version of the app and we're already looking at making changes with the, the uh, donation that we got so we can reach more people and make sure people are able to, to track themselves better, whether it's nutrition, whether it's sleep, whether it's just meditation. These other things that we're starting to really show as a huge benefit to our mental and, and physical health. 
Well, and that, again, it creates that network of other folks out there maybe have expertise you don't have in health and wellness and mental health and physical health that team RWB's uh, connecting people, and that's uh, what we've been talking about. So John Founts uh, with a team red, white, and blue and, and a uh, retired 20-year uh, Army colonel, uh, we're glad that you had a little extra time today to talk to Veterans Radio, and uh, we'd be glad to check in with you every now and again to see what's new with uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. I would love it, and I do hope that people have a chance to check out teamrwb.org. Um, it's free to sign up, join our team, and uh, help us forge the nation's leading health and wellness community for veterans. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, Jim. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. And the Veterans Lending Council, which advises lenders, realtors, buyers about VA Home Loan Program, and you can find them on Facebook. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time, you are dismissed.